we use uh, number words a lot to describe things like octogenarian, right? We've got a few octogenarians here. Uh, nonagenarian, right? 90, in their 90s. I think we may have some nonagenarians. We uh, also use it for more humorous things. Well, normal, like descriptive phrases like octagon, but also octomom, right? <clears throat> we know that has something to do with eight-somethings that she has, right? <clears throat> um, and then uh, one of our most famous ones is pentagon, right? Uh, we, we don't even think, when you hear pentagon, you don't think, well, who's drawing a shape? You just think of the pentagon. It's the pentagon. But it happens to be in the shape of five, you know, five sides to that great building that was struck even recently, 9-11. And uh, that helps us a little bit to understand Pentecost, okay? has the word five in it, Pentagon, Pentecost, but it, uh, it actually means 50th. So it doesn't have the word day, but it means the 50th day, Pentecost. And the way they would measure it is on the day of Passover, which... For the Jews, the day of Passover for us now, Good Friday, the day Christ died. Uh, the day after, uh, after the Sabbath on that weekend, we would say, uh, they had a certain sheaf offering, uh, part of a grain that they would offer, and then they're supposed to count 50 days from there to have the Feast of Weeks. They call weeks because you, you measure seven weeks, then the 50th. Interesting that 50 was associated with Jubilee as well in the Old Testament. On the 50th year, there would be the release of slaves. So seven sevens, incredibly significant. It has to do with fullness and complete fullness. The 50th day. Amazing that God just happened to pour His Spirit out on the 50th day. The day also that's called, not just, it's called the Feast of Weeks, but it's also called the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. And what's amazing about this is that it began something kind of like the seventh day of creation. We entered into the 50th week and we hadn't gotten out of it. And the 50th week will continue to the end of time. It is the age of the Spirit, the age of the great harvest of God, the age of the great ingathering of God's people from all nations that will continue until the last day. And we are in it, and we've been in it. So we want to explore this Pentecost event some this morning. A lot of misunderstanding about it uh, throughout the history of the church. Uh, and a lot of great teaching as well on it, and we want to try to get at some of that this morning. The first thing I want to underscore is the uniqueness of the historical event itself. Um, so, but we just want to put it this way, uh, that the spirit age is announced in this event. Uh, not, in particular, that this same thing should happen to you every time you believe in Jesus. That you 
speak in tongues, etc. Okay, so I just want to make, make this case, but not so much defending the right view as to underscore the significance of this for all of us and what we're to believe as Luke is writing this to us. How does this encourage us? How does this undergird our faith? He's writing to Theophilus, wanting him to uh, know for certain the things that have been taught him. And so we want to try to get at that. So this, first of all, just the fact that it's happening on Pentecost, the the nature of it, the, the, the noise of it, the, the sight of it, that there was uh, a sound like a rushing wind and the, 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 the presence of fire. We'll talk about this in a minute, how this indicated the very presence of God, the very glory cloud of God that had come upon His people in a whole new way. But this event we must look at, as John Stott wisely points out, that uh, it's one of those momentous events of Jesus, you know, his birth and life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring on Pentecost. This is the kind of apex of all of his work. It's where all of his work, and we'll see where the whole Old Testament was headed to this age of the Spirit that has begun on this day. The whole Old Testament rushes to this point of the outpouring of the Spirit and now the ingathering of people throughout the whole world. And so it's the final act, uh, say, for his second coming uh, of this bunched-up events of Christ uh, from his birth to the outpouring of the Spirit. And you'll notice in Acts, you might expect that this is just going to be repeated again and again and, and, and the mention of tongues again and again. But you don't see that in Acts. You see tongues mentioned only two more times. Once when the Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles. And we've already, we talked about this some last week, you know, talking about the rabbi in Dallas who said there's no such thing as Jews for Jesus. And we talked about how that's all there were to begin with. And it's interesting as you look here in chapter uh, 10 of uh, Acts when Peter was called to speak to Gentiles. And it says in verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And I love this. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they're like, Gentiles for Jesus? What? Are you kidding me? Gentiles for Jesus? No way. This can't be happening. And then when they come back to report to the other Jews in Jerusalem, uh, they first are calling Peter on the carpet because they say, we heard that you went and you ate with Gentiles. And you got to get their mindset. They are faithful. These are Messiah believers, right? These are Christians. They believe in Messiah. They believe that Messiah is to spread out throughout the whole world. They just heard it. But they believe that everybody's going to become a Jew to, to know the Messiah. And it doesn't mean either that you can just go and start eating with Gentiles. So they're calling him on the carpet just for eating with the Gentiles. And I love how Peter says there in chapter 11, 
he says, uh, after seeing the Spirit poured out, he says, if then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, that I, who is I that I could stand in God's way? You know, he had done that before with Jesus. He had had a little taste of standing in God's way, pulling off to the side and said, when Jesus started talking about suffering, he said, I don't know exactly what the conversation was like, you know, but it had to be something along the lines of, Jesus, look, it's kingship, Israel's exalted, the whole world serves us. That's where we're headed. The death thing ain't going to work, you know. This suffering and dying, I don't know. You've got to get these negative thoughts out of your head. You know, I don't know what it was, but he's just going after this, trying to get Jesus to think differently about what he's going to do. And, and, but this time he said, what am I going to say to God? Gentiles, you can't, wait a minute, you can't, they've got to be. He said, God made his statement. God did it. God declared the way it's going to be, and this is the way it's going to be. His Spirit is poured out on Gentiles. You see the importance of it happening just like it did in Acts 2? You get it, right? What else is going to convince them? He said it was poured out just like we, they spoke in tongues just like we did. It's exactly the same thing right there on the Gentiles. Okay, okay. Goes to the Gentiles then. Now, we're, we're told that there was a special ministry to the Samaritans in chapter 8 of Acts. But there again, it, it doesn't mention tongues, but it does mention the special pouring out of the Spirit on the Samaritans. And there you have another transitional group before you get to Gentiles. But it's the same basic thing. And then later in chapter 19, they run across some disciples of John, and we see a kind of mini-Pentecost repeated in chapter 19, when they prophesy and the Spirit is poured out on these disciples. But that, again, is to say to all anywhere who have enjoyed the ministry of John the Baptist, which was the apex of Old Testament, you've got to have this one experience of Messiah through the apostolic ministry. It can be nowhere else except through the apostolic ministry. And so these are the only events where this happens. Otherwise, in just... Case after case after case of conversion, including Paul's own conversion, there's no mention of tongues. There's no mention of this, these kind of events. It's, it's done in a specific way, and it's declared to you and me for our benefit so that we can truly believe God came upon His church by the Spirit. It's not so that we can get something of this experience uh, of the particular phenomena upon us. It's the fact that this is a declaration to us. Look what the Lord has done once and for all in history to inaugurate the age of the Spirit promised in the Old Testament. We're here. We're in it. That's what's so encouraging for us as uh, this beautiful song that uh, Jacob just sang for us to say of the prophets, the Lord was upon them. Of Jesus, the Lord was upon him. Uh, the Lord was upon him in his death. And then this wonderful phrase at the end, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us in a way never before. The Spirit is upon us. 
You do have the Spirit. You are of the age of the Spirit. He does transform you for, uh, to, for, for a new character and a new witness uh, for Him. And this age of the Spirit is even a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament going all the way back to the promise to Abraham. <laughs> this is amazing. God comes to Abraham, isolating redemption, focusing on one person. So it, it looks like he's narrowing the focus, and he is in one sense saying, you're my man, Abraham. But in the very first comment, the very first revelation to Abraham, he says, you are going to be a blessing to the nations through your descendant. That all the nations are going to be blessed. So the focus on one is to declare what's going to happen to the whole world one day. And so Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. He talked about Christ being cursed for us, redeeming us from the curse, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So pointing us back to that phrase, back to Genesis 12. That blessing, when he spoke to Abraham and says, through your descendant, all the nations are going to be blessed. Amazing statement. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. And here Paul says, it's happened in Christ Jesus. He says, and here it is, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the blessing to the nations, that the Spirit is poured out upon this world, upon His people, and upon this world. We are living in that glorious age that was so plainly uh, revealed in this instance. And later, of course, we'll get into it as we talk about Peter's sermon, but their, their question at the end is, some skeptical saying, well, they're filled with new wine. Of course, interesting because during the feast, during the morning, you aren't supposed to touch wine, which is very unlikely, and that's why Peter calls this to mind, only the third hour of the day. But you see, Peter points them in, to them and says, look, you've seen something. All of you people have rushed forward. And, of course, they actually heard the language the, the, the mighty acts of God spoken in their own language. It's like their native language is scattered all over the Roman Empire. So they couldn't escape it. They couldn't escape this astounding thing that these Galileans were speaking in their language and they had heard the mighty sound and here's evidence. And he points to Jesus being uh, ascended to God. And so you and I have that, that assurance, that conviction He is ascended. He did pour His Spirit out on His church. Here's the testimony of what happened. And you can't gainsay it. It wasn't made up. These thousands of people saw this event. And it's it's God's astounding revelation of who He is, what He's done in Christ, and how He is moving forward in this world. And all of this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's why our, our title even points to that, the coming, the promise outpoured, you see. It's the promise outpoured. When Jesus was talking about this at the end of Acts 24, he, he says that 
I will send you the promise of my Father. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Earlier here in Acts chapter 1, uh, he says, uh, I will, you must wait for the promise of the Father that will come. So the, the Spirit is, is substitute. The word promise is substituted for the Spirit. That's how much this is all about promise. So as you think of the word promise in the Old Testament, as you think of the promise to bless the nations, you almost can substitute the word spirit for it. Because the Spirit is the essence of the promise. The Spirit brings the promises to bear in our hearts. The Spirit reveals the great work of Jesus Christ to us. The, the Spirit causes us to live out the love of God in our lives. The promise is upon us. The promise is upon us. The Holy Spirit. Then we need to see what this means. The Spirit being upon us. And I want to talk about the presence of God and then the transforming presence personally for us and then the transforming presence as it moves out in the world. So we'll spend a little less time on each of these. But uh, the presence of God, in other words, let's beware of thinking that we only have the Spirit of God, we don't really have God Himself. And, And I think people's... We all have fuzzy thinking sometimes about this, as though the Spirit is the power of God that we have, or it's some kind of feeling or presence of God in some uh, detached way. But he means by this, God, in all of His glory, in all of His majesty, in all of His fullness, God has come upon us, okay? Through His Spirit, okay? But the Spirit is 100% God. The Spirit has all of the attributes of God. There is nothing, he is nothing less than God. He is all that God is in terms of His expansive, unending, boundless character and being. He, God, is with us through the Spirit. This is why uh, wind is called to mind here because several times in the Old Testament, uh, the presence of God was a rushing wind. And, of course, fire is constantly a symbol of His presence. So the fire by day and the, cl- uh, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night that uh, was over Israel. And it's interesting that the uh, New Age is described in terms of that, uh, that metaphor. In uh, Isaiah 4, for instance, he says... Then, speaking of the new age that will come, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Well, literally, that's not going to happen. But figuratively, metaphorically, Yes, God has come and His glory cloud has come upon the church here in Acts chapter 2. And we're to understand from that the glory cloud remains on His church. The glory cloud dwells upon us, dear people. 
And lest you think, yeah, okay, fine, but it would have really been cooler if I'd have been back there and I'd seen the glory of God physically, you know, and seen the fire at night and all that. That would have been pretty cool. That would have been way better than this. Well, just call to mind what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 when he's talking about the Old Testament ministry versus the New Testament ministry. And he's talking specifically about uh, Moses meeting with God and having the glory of God's presence shining in his face. And you think, that would have been cool, seeing this light coming forth from his face, being there that day when you saw it. Man, that would have been convincing to see that. And Paul is amazing in 2 Corinthians 3 when he's talking about it. He says, the glory of the old has no glory at all compared to the glory of the new. Why? Because we have the Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out in our lives. And he talks about the the effect of the Spirit bringing us into conformity to the character of Jesus Dear brothers and sisters, we're shining out a new aspect of the glory of God and the very character of God shining forth from us. And Paul says, this glory of the presence of the Spirit causing and forming us as a community, shining out the light of the character of God and the announcement of the character of God makes that glory of the Old Testament nothing at all. presence of God is upon us. Do we believe it? That's why Brian spoke of this as we even begin worship. Because in the, a particular way, we form the temple. We form the dwelling place of God together as His people. And in that dwelling place, He manifests Himself in a, in a glorious way. And now, as opposed to the temple in the Old Testament, this is a mobile temple, right? This is uh, on, it's, it's, a, it's a dwelling place that's moving, that's uh, a mobile unit, and it's infiltrating the world. It's not just a place where people come to the temple, it's a temple that's breaking out in the midst. Because here also is the truth that Paul says, your bodies are dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So though we form in a unique way the temple of God, we each individually, and that's the point of the individual fire falling upon them, is each one of you, each one of you is a sacred place of God. You are sacred place of the presence of God on earth. Do you understand that? On earth, where are you going to find this sacred place? That's why, except for hurting somebody, I, I don't want kids running in here, you know, while a lot of people in here, because they're going to knock an octogenarian down. Uh, <laughs> or a sexagenarian, I'm in the 60s, you know. Um, but on Sunday nights, we come in here and we... We play games with the kids. We play relay. You know, we've we've seen uh, Eric uh, do cartwheels down this aisle on uh, you know talent night. We do people would think unholy things on talent night. Not really, but uh, just I mean, Steve's dress itself is a is a 
a reason to know that we don't treat this as a holy place, you know, his costumes that he comes out with. Uh, what's my point? My point is, and, and I know uh, Mike made a great point of this more than I have because he's probably just more faithful in this, but he made a great point to say this isn't a sanctuary. This is an auditorium. Why would he do that? What's the big deal? Well, you're the sanctuary, right? You're the sacred spot, each of you, and then us. We're the holy place. We meet in this auditorium. We're the holy place. And this can change how you think about yourself, both in being careful to keep sin out of your life because you're a holy place, but encourage you to think, I can, by God's grace, take on the character of Jesus because I'm a holy place now. The, the very God of, of heaven and earth dwells in me, dwells in us. There's hope for us to have love and a growing community and to accept broken people and to be humble before them and to make people unlike us feel loved. Why do we have hope of this? Because we're a holy place. Because God indwells us. We can be what we're not by nature. We can be what we've never been by nature as a church because God has made us a holy place. That's something of what this means, you see, that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. God in His presence is upon His church. And one, you've heard me use this before, but I just have to refer you to this passage so that you make you and I keep this association. So, here, the most likely place where you're not going to feel like you're the holy place, you're not going to feel like the cloud of glory rests on you, will be suffering. Right? Ain't no glory cloud in the midst of suffering. Glory cloud, you're in a dungeon somewhere, wasting away, starving to death, with lashes on your back or your body, and you're bleeding to death. Where's the glory cloud? Where is it? And yet Peter can say, If you are insulted for the name of Christ and whatever else, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Spirit of glory rests upon you in the midst of your rejection from the world. Because you are the holy place of God. And this means, the presence of God, a transforming presence. It means that we will take on the character of Christ, that we could have the very affections uh, of Christ, the humility of Christ, that we, we could submit to the Father after the pattern of Christ. We could have a new admiration for God because of the Spirit bringing about in our hearts true worship. We could have a heart for the lost, something like Christ does, because He is indwelling us by His Spirit. We could have his desire for the nations as he expressed it in John that I will gather my sheep and this passion of the shepherd for the lost. We can have that as well. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, I labor, I do all of this suffering, 2 Timothy 2.10, for the sake of the elect that they may receive salvation and eternal glory. He says, I lose everything, I sacrifice everything to, to gather those people. He had the Spirit of God in his heart. He had the Spirit of Christ in his heart. 
And that's not said to us to say, oh boy, you know, Paul, that would be something, wouldn't it? If you could be like Paul. No, it's always to say, if Paul, then me. If the Spirit had dwell in Paul, the Spirit, the same Spirit dwells in us. We can have that passion. We can have that transforming that transformed character that is so essential for witness. So when he says, you will be witnesses to me, certainly he means you'll be of testimony to what I am, but your very life will be a testimony. Your very life will take on a new character as part of the testimony of this gospel. And one of the centerpieces of our testimony and the centerpieces of our new character is shown here when it says that in these languages that they were speaking in, and, and he, he surveys uh, starting more or less from the west going all the way to the east uh, of the Roman Empire, naming all of these people. And he says in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what was happening is that they were praising God to these people. And there's a great pattern for us. There's a great pattern that part of the transforming presence of the Spirit will be to enable us to worship Him with hearts that are just breaking over the beauty of God. Just breaking, exhilarated over the beauty and majesty and wonder of God. And that this attitude of praise, this attitude of trust and admiration spills out of our lives to be spoken to others and to be lived out before others. So Peter says that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your definition, okay? The definition of what happens to us when the Spirit indwells us is we have this new capacity to praise and enjoy and adore and give our lives up to this God and we take this praise and we speak it to the world. I don't mean in a crass, silly, inhuman way, you know, with a kind of giddy look on our face and uh, wild eyes saying praise the Lord every other phrase, you know. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're to be enculturated. We're to live normal, everyday lives and not stand out because of our just quirky personalities or something. Okay, that's not what it's about. But it is about living in a kind of joy and buoyancy and hope and energy in the midst of all kinds of life that our lives are declaring the majesty and goodness of God. And so in the Psalms, again and again... The, the, the nations are invited to praise God. And uh, we're to, to, it says in uh, Psalm 96.3, declare His glory among the nations. So dear brothers and sisters, worship is really, it's the whole of our lives in the sense that living to His glory and praising Him here is just what we're going to do with some degree of happiness and energy in the world as well. I love how in Psalm 107, we see this phrase. He says, Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And the next psalm, which is Psalm 108, yeah. Uh, Psalm 108, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So you see, in one phrase, he's saying, I can't wait to praise you in the in the assembly. 
And then the next psalm he's saying, and I will praise you in the nations. There's not a big thick line between those. It's our praise and love and adoration of Christ spill out from this place and and lived out before a watching world. That is what the Spirit does in His people. And I'm going to close with that and, and catch up some of the other things I was going to say next week. But we have this glorious uh, opportunity in the age of the Spirit to be a part of God's assault operation in this world, to be a part of what God is doing to transform this world, to make known a pervasive, intoxicating, alluring, magnetic love and happiness and hope that draws people to Christ. You can adorn the doctrine of God because of the Spirit. And God will reach His people in the world, and He will use a people for that. And this question is, will you be a part of that? Will you see yourself as a part of being in the glory cloud manifested in this world? You think of a girl, now I don't know what you think of dancing, but let's assume dancing is good. Dancing is okay. But you think of a girl who goes to a dance and she's there for three hours, but she's just so shy, she's so scared, and even though she's asked several times, she just doesn't get on the dance floor. And she goes home and that was it. She just kind of sat by herself watching all the fun, watching it happen. And you think of this other girl who goes and she too is shy and she too is reticent and she doesn't think she wants to get out there, but she finally does, and she apparently is more gifted than she thinks, and she can really start dancing well, and she dances dance after dance after dance and just wears herself out. She had the best time of her life, and she looks back and thinks, gosh, what if I just had stayed in that chair and hadn't gotten on the floor and danced? And get the application. I want to see you at the dance, brothers and sisters. You're called to be a part of the dance. You're called to live out this intoxicating joy of the Spirit in this world. To have hospitality for your neighbor, to meet your neighbor, to love the person next to you in the checkout line, to, to manifest the beauty of Christ in everything you do and say. And you will be His witness because the power of the Spirit has come upon us and we are in the glory cloud. God dwells with His people. Let's dance. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, encourage us, embolden us, give us joy in You that becomes, as Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. May that joy become our strength, Lord. Our strength to love one another, our strength to love a lost world, a strength to love people very different than us. Oh Lord, we confess to you the weakness of our faith and the weakness of our love. And Lord, how really little at times we even think about who we are and what we are in the Spirit, who we are in this world, what you've called us to be and enable us to be through your Holy Spirit. Oh, bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.